Thanks, Shauna. Good morning, Woodland Hills. So good to see all of you. And welcome to uh, Podrishioners and others listening through other means. Um, my thanks to Scott, who preached last week. Did a great job. Thanks, Scott Bourne, for delivering that message. God really spoke through him. Wasn't that great? And um, I was up in Toronto uh, visiting a friend, Bruxy Cavi, um, in his church, the Meeting House. It's, I guess, the second largest, uh, or maybe the largest church in Canada. Um, and uh, just got a chance to hang out with him and, and minister at his church. And it had a great time, just a fantastic time. This guy is this, this, this wild man. He's crazy. Um, and I've never met someone who has the theological beliefs uh, and convictions uh, that are so closely aligned with my own. I mean, identical. we tried to find something to argue about. We couldn't find it. Uh, it was, so we really felt there's a kind of kinship that we need to pay attention to. And he'll be coming to preach here at some point. Uh, this was one of these trade things where I preached up there and he's going to preach down here and develop a relationship with that body. I see that we've got some ushers standing there coughing, trying to get my attention. A what? You, you, you want me to start? What, what's the deal here? Okay, I guess we're supposed to take up an offering. That's what you do here. All right, forgot about that. All right, because money's just so unimportant to us, right? All right, Father, we just acknowledge everything we have belongs to you. And also as an act of worship, we then surrender this to you. Guide us and lead us on how we steward your resources to further your kingdom. Help the poor. Evangelize the lost. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we are in this uh, series called Scandalous Love. And officially, it goes six weeks, and so we're at the end of it. But I have a sense, a sense it's not supposed to end just yet. Uh, we will get back to the book of Luke. I know some of you are going through Luke withdrawals. We've been in the book of Luke for like seven years. Uh, and, and so I understand that. I, I even sh I empathize with you on that. But there is just a kind of an anointing on this series that, that um, we've got to pay attention to. And I just feel like we're, we're going to hover here a little longer. Uh, it's going to outrun, you know, the material we've prepared and stuff like that. But um, in one way or another, for a week or two or three or four more, we're, 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 we're going to stay on this theme. I at least, I know I'm supposed to go back to the, the prodigal son story. Uh, and, and, and take another swipe at that. I, 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 in light of this series we've been in, I've just you know, seen some things in that story that I haven't seen before. Maybe the story of the lost sheep and the, the jewel and those two and uh, other things like that. So, so we're going to hover on this for a little bit. But this is the official uh, end of this series. Uh, Scott last week talked about how the scandalous love of God uh, invades our life and, and gets translated in our love back to Him. And this morning we want to close off this series, at least officially close off this series, by talking about how the scandalous love of God invades our life and translates into a love for others, um, a, a love for one another, a love for even our enemies. And the passage I want to read, and this is just sort of to prime the pump, because uh, we won't get to it for about another 15 minutes, uh, but uh, I just put this in your cranium and, and let it stew there for a little bit. It comes out of 2 Corinthians 5. Verses 14 and 15, which says, for, God, for Christ's love compels us, motivates us, drives us. Christ's love compels us because, here's why, we are convinced that one died for all. Jesus died for all, and therefore all died. What? What does that mean? And he died for all, here's why. So that those who live should no longer live for themselves, 
but for him who died for them and was raised again. Jesus died so that there would be a people who, on the basis of his sacrificial death, would no longer live for themselves, but would rather live uh, their life for the one who died for them and who set them free. Again, when I pray, Father, anoint this message, open the ears of everyone in this auditorium, uh, all of our pod listeners, those watching on television, uh, God, whoever's coming in contact with this message, Holy Spirit, do a supernatural work to lower all barriers, uh, all filters, to hear the undiluted truth uh, of, of your word and to be transformed by it and to be radicalized by your kingdom, that we could be outrageous lovers the way you're an outrageous lover. Only you can do that. Only you can do that. I have no confidence in any speech or anything like that. No, it's Holy Spirit, impregnate each word, each pause with your presence and your spirit and your truth and be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said. All right. Well, if you read the New Testament, I'm sure some of you have. You, it's hard to miss, though people actually do miss this, but... It's clear on every page, just about that, the center of everything in terms of how we're called to live, the center of everything is the call to love others like God has loved us. It, 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 it's, it just permeates the entire New Testament. I, several years ago, we spent six months talking on nothing but this, the call to love. Uh, it's a series called Love and the Knowledge of Good and Evil. But we read things like this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, let everything you do be done in love. Everything. Every single thing is to be motivated by love, compelled by love, driven by love. That means if, 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 if you can't do it in love, don't do it. I, I often encourage people, if you're in a debate, whether it's theology or politics or whatever, and winning the debate becomes more important to you than expressing love towards the person you're debating with, do the kingdom a favor and shut up. Because you can win that debate, but you're losing if you're not communicating to the person that you love them in the process of debating with them. Love trumps everything in terms of priorities. Everything is to be done in love. Paul says in Ephesians 5, be imitators of God. The word there is mimetai in Greek. It means to mimic. Be a God mimic. God mimicker. Mimic God. And here's what it looks like. If you mimic God, you will live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. To live in that love, that means... That means there's no off button to this. That means it's never appropriate to make a decision not to love somebody. You live in it. That means if you're breathing, it's the right time to love. If you've got any brain brain waves at all, it's the right time to love. If your heart is beating, it's the right time to love. Doesn't matter who's in front of you, your call is to love them 24-7. No ifs, ands, or buts. Incredible stuff. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 13 that it doesn't matter what other kind of religious goods you've got. It doesn't matter how spectacular your faith is. You can move mountains. It doesn't matter how much knowledge you have. or You can understand all the mysteries in the world. You can have prophetic powers. You can work miracles, speak in tongues, and all the rest. And that's all well and good. But if it's not motivated by love, if it doesn't express love, it's altogether worthless. It is a noisy gong, a noisy cymbal, Paul says. It's irritating noise to God. It's not just a little bit diminished if you don't have love. It's completely nullified if you don't have love. Love is everything. It is the all or nothing of, of the kingdom life. It is that important. And it's a love not just to people who are convenient to love, but it's a love even to our enemies. Even those who threaten us, 
In the first century, as we've said a number of times, when Jews would hear the word enemy, the first thing they think of is Romans. The Romans are these terrorists who are oppressing us. And yet Jesus says, you love them. You do good to them. If they strike you, you turn the other cheek. Radical, radical stuff. And if we get, if we get just how beautiful and how radical the call to love is in the New Testament, and we have any level of honest self-awareness at all, we will immediately realize that we can't do that. There's no way we can, by our own effort, love like that. To fulfill the call of the kingdom requires a supernatural anointing from God, a transformation at the core of our being. The kingdom is not an ethic that the general populace is supposed to adopt and, and is able to live out. You can't live like this unless Christ is flowing in you and through you and transforming you to the core of your being. That's what the kingdom is all about. It's about being born again, and this is what being born again looks like. People sometimes ask the question, well, how do I get more of that love? I need more of that love. I need God's love to come in, into my life because I, I don't love my enemies. So, so what can I do to get that love? Is there a book I can read to get that love? Is there a prayer I can pray to get that love? Is there a sermon I can listen to to get that love? And the answer is no. Uh, I think that's, that, that, that is the wrong question to be asking. Uh, I think that you can do something to get more of that love. In fact, what I want to argue here or, or, or proclaim here this morning is that, it, that what keeps us from that love is a lie, and if we just wake up to the lie and start living in the truth, we'll realize we don't need to get the love because we've already got it. That's the essence of what I think this passage that we looked at is uh, talking about. I'll get back to that message in a little bit here. I want to lay some background. Uh, what is this a picture of? Here's the background to uh, 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 5 that we're going to be looking at. What, what's that a picture of? Do you like it? Yeah, it's a good picture. That is, in fact, what Dan's supposed to be showing right now. You keep on waiting for something else. No, that is the picture. Uh, it's a picture of complete blackness. But what it really is the picture of, if you look very carefully, is it's a picture of a black hole. Because at the center of that blackness is a supercondensed matter. Did you see that? That's at the center of all that blackness. But see, as some of you know from, from physics and astronomy and whatnot, black holes are created because you've got these suns that are so dense that they have so much gravity, the light can't escape. The light gets pulled back into it. The gravity sucks in all the light photons in the, in the surrounding area. So when astronomers look out at the, the sky, they find these, 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 these black holes. And at the center of them, they know, is the supercondensed matter. And it sucks in all of its environment. Anything that comes to the vicinity of a black hole gets sucked in. Well, those black holes are a lot like us in our fallen condition. We have a lot in common. We were created to be beings who depend completely, entirely, exhaustively on God. We are created to have God as our source of everything, as we sang about a little bit earlier. All we need to do is worship. All, all, all we need is God, and at the core of our being, that is just so true. God is to be the source of our worth, our self-esteem, our sense of fullness of life, our sense of joy, our sense of security, at the core of our being. God is to be our everything, God is to be our all. What is true is that we need God the way our lungs need air. We need God the way, the way we need water, the way, the way our stomachs need food, the way, the way plants need sunlight. We are desperate for God, whether we know it or not. But see, when we're alienated from God, as we as a race are, because of the rebellion, we're separated from our source. And so we suffocate, we die, we shrivel up. We are 
the way a lung is when it doesn't get air, or the way our stomach is when it doesn't get food for a long period of time, or where, what plants are when they're put in the dark. We shrivel up, we die. Life without God, life alienated from our source, our creator, is always in the process of shriveling and dying. And the smell of that decay, the symptom of that, 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 that alienation, is this inner hunger that we always have that will not go away. It is what we called several weeks ago on Easter, uh, uh, on the Easter weekend, Zainsucht, the German word Zainsucht, which it just means a yearning for something, but we don't know what it is. This indefinable yearning. Every human being at the core of their being has this. This frustration, this hunger for something. We're living life like a black hole with this craving. We're perpetually hungry. And see, if God isn't filling that vacuum, then what happens is we try to fill it with everything else. We try to feel fully alive based on what's around us, uh, based on whose opinions uh, we, we can get to approve of us, or based on our achievements, or based on our good looks, or our sexiness, or our smarts, or what have you. We look like this. We're sucking off of our environment, the people around us, and the things around us, and trying to fill the hole in our soul, like a black hole, sucking in light photons. We're like a super condensed blob of, of, of matter that, that has this gravity that sucks in everything trying to get whole. That's why people pursue the American dream. That's why they always got to earn more money. And that's why they get obsessed with how they look or that people think they're great football players or singers or that they're really religious. Or We're always trying to impress because we're trying to feel like our life is worth living. We, 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 like we got meaning. We have purpose. We're loved. We have security. We try to suck things into ourselves. Our life looks like a black hole. And then we view everything in the world. If, if, if we're walking around with this perpetual zengsuk, this hunger, well then that conditions the way we look at the world. We see everything through the lens of our hunger. That's why the sign of our rebellion in the Garden of Eden, in the book of Genesis, is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because see, what happens is this. When we're walking around in this life as a black hole, looking for, for food, we evaluate everything. In terms of whether it's food for us, in terms of whether it's edible, we evaluate whether a person uh, is for us or against us, whether they like us or don't like us, whether we approve of them or we don't approve of them, whether they approve of us or don't approve of us. Um, we're always looking for life. We have like a computer in our, in our heads that's always screening things, evaluating, calculating, all these opinions. Always assessing, is it food? Is it food? Will it make me feel fully alive? Will it benefit me or harm me? We're always judging. That's why our head is full of this gossip. The accuser has gotten into our head, as we said a couple weeks ago, and made us little accusers. Because one of the ways we get life, one of the primary ways we get life is by contrasting ourselves with others. Well, we may not be perfect, but we're, at least we're not like that person or that person. Or, oh my gosh, that person. And then we form little clubs based on who we're against, and we all feel good about ourselves. We're, we're, we're sucking life off of people. It's pharisaical. Our head is full of this, this, this accuser pollution. It's because we're, we're hungry and this is one way of feeding ourselves, a primary way of feeding ourselves. This, this infects all of our relationships insofar as we're living in this world, this, this contract world, which Scott talked about last week, this, this world of negotiations because it's a world of evaluations and opinions and judgments. And everything gets filed in legal categories and we're always making deals based on what will feed us. And it affects all of our relationships. Here's a relationship. This can be a romantic relationship. And what happens is this. I'm walking around hungry, and suppose I'm single, I'm walking around hungry, and you're single, you're walking around hungry. We, 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 we meet, and we start evaluating one another. I evaluate you, you evaluate me. I size you up, you size me up. We're looking at each other through our little grids. 
All right, our little filters. How will you benefit me? And you're saying, how will you benefit me? And, uh, and we're asking the question, should we make a deal? And love in that framework, what we call love, is always a love because of something. I love you because, unlike that person, you have this, and unlike that person, you have this. I love your hair, I love your smile, I love the way you make me, you know, you think my jokes are funny, I love the way you make me feel like a man. You're saying, I love the way you make me feel like a, you make me feel like a natural woman. Who's saying that? Carol King. Yes, we have all of this stuff. I love you because we're making a deal. Love, love in this contract worldview is always a quid pro quo. That's Latin for you know, kind of one thing for another, tit for tat. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. I make you feel complete, you make me feel complete. You complete me. It's, it's a deal. But see, love in that contract framework is not a very fulfilling love. And then what happens, of course, is that if I think that you would benefit me, then I try to prove to you that I will benefit you. So I fluff up my feathers, put my best foot forward. You fluff up your feathers, put your best foot forward. And, and, and what we marry is the presentation of the person, not necessarily the real person. Uh, and those of you who are married don't want to say amen to that right now, okay? <laughs> but this is a problem because it takes about six weeks to find out that, that the person was putting their best foot forward and there's a whole lot more to the story than maybe that you knew what was going on. It, it's, 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 it's let's make a deal romance. But see, it's frustrating, it's unfulfilling because the innermost part of your being isn't being loved. Love because of never gets to the core of who we are because we're more than a because of. The core of my being, I'm more than just my stunning good looks, huh? I'm more than my religiosity. I'm, I'm more than all the reasons you can have for loving me. And that part of me is hungry and wants to be loved. But see, if you're loving me because of, well, then the core of me isn't feeling loved. And I know that if those things went away, well, then maybe you wouldn't really love me anymore. So we walk around hungry. We even do our relationship with God like that. We think that God loves in a contract kind of a way. God loved because of. God loves me because... I believe all the right things as opposed to those heretics who believe the wrong things. God loves me because I have all the right behaviors, or at least most of the right behaviors, as opposed to those people who engage in the wrong behaviors. God loves me because. And if God, if you think God loves you because of something, well then the core of your being doesn't feel loved. There's no unconditional love there, and you're still walking around hungry. In the contract world, the negotiating world, this world that's governed by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there is no room for agape love which is what we've been talking about throughout this whole series. Because agape love isn't a contract kind of love. Agape love isn't a negotiating love. It's not a deal-making kind of love. It's not a quid pro quo kind of a love. Agape love is other-oriented love. It is unconditional love. In, in the contract world, you can have eros. Remember, we, we talked about the different kinds of love in Greek. Uh, eros, we get the word erotic from it. It's passion, sexuality, romance. You can have that kind of love in this contract worldview. You can have storge, which is just affection. I love your hair. I love my car or whatever. You can have that kind of love in a uh, contract worldview. You can even have philos, which is friendship. You can have that kind of love in a contract worldview. But you cannot have, you cannot have agape. Because agape... Is this unconditional love. It's love without evaluation. It's love without negotiation. It's love without judgment. It's love without extraneous opinions. It's just love. It's just there. It's love without any consideration for the merit of the other person, whether they deserve love or not. And because agape love has no place in the contract worldview, and because this entire world is in bondage to the accuser and lives in the contract worldview, well, then the New Testament's teaching about loving enemies doesn't make any sense. According to the New Testament, it's not supposed to make sense to people living in that worldview, the mindset of the flesh, 
Paul says it's foolishness. It doesn't make any sense to love your enemies. What kind of a deal is that? You can't negotiate with the enemy. And I mean by that this. Uh, you can't get it. The enemy has nothing for you in terms of a payback for the love. I'm supposed to love them even though they're not nice to me, even though they're mean to me, maybe they gossip about me, maybe they even threaten me, maybe they're going to kill me, and I'm supposed to love them? What kind of a deal is that? That's a dumb deal. That's a stupid deal. And it is. There's, there's no room for agape love, and that's why the New Testament doesn't make any sense in that framework. We need a completely different kind of a framework. And see, if you're asking the question, how do I get more love for people uh, and for irritating people and for enemies, how do I get more of God's love in my life for them? And yet you're operating in the contract worldview, the judgment worldview. Well, then the answer is you can't. There's no way to get there. You can't get there by increments if you're operating in the framework of this legal contract negotiating worldview. The whole thing has got to be blown sky high if you have any hope of ever loving the way the Bible calls us to love. What we need to do is to wake up to the reality that that whole worldview, that contract worldview, is premised on a lie, deception. And when we understand the truth, we'll realize that in a very real sense, the love that we need, we don't have to ask for it because we've already got it. Here's what's true. God is the opposite of a black hole. Whereas a black hole sucks everything into it, God is eternally giving himself away. Because God is eternally agape love. God is love. It's not just the verb he does, it's the noun he is. 1 John 4, 8. God's, the nature of God's love is, is other-oriented, even within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God is from eternity to eternity, this explosion of light that is love, this explosion of life, this explosion of love. He is the supernova, if you will, the unsurpassable supernova of, of, of perfect, uh, uh, unimprovable love throughout eternity. He doesn't just start doing that when he creates the world. That's who he is, this ecstatic, the bliss of, of, of the love of the triune fellowship. And it's as though that love is such that it cannot be contained. And so God is eternally expressing himself. And one of the ways he expresses himself, we learn in scripture, is by creating things other than himself. God creates to express who he is. He overflows with love. He explodes. He can't contain it. So he shares it here with, with other beings. And he invites us in on the love that he is. Ultimately, everything that exists, insofar as it exists truly, insofar as, as, as it, it is what God created it to be, it is an expression of God's love. Every molecule that exists, insofar as it is what it's supposed to be. Now, we live in a war zone where a lot of things aren't the way they're supposed to be, but insofar as it is what it's supposed to be, everything expresses God's creative love, the fullness of God's love. It exists by grace. The entire creation exists by grace. Every breath you take exists, uh, is there by grace. Every heartbeat is a gift from God. It's there by grace. God is just expressing himself in his unfathomable, uncontainable, unsurpassable love. It exists by love. And as it concerns human beings, that overflow... That uncontainable overflow, explosion of love, that is what we're created for. That is the spiritual air that we breathe, the spiritual food that we are to eat. God is to be our source for being fully alive. And we all desperately want to feel fully alive. God's the source of our worth and significance because everybody wants to feel significant. Like your life matters, your life counts. God is to be the source of our security. We, we, that's a fundamental need that we have. God is to be the source of all that. And so in God's design, here's how it was supposed to work. God was supposed to overflow towards us as we overflow towards others. We were, we were not meant to be black holes that are walking around perpetually hungry trying to suck life off of our environment. We were meant to be centers of fullness. 
that overflow in love towards others. Not as our own source, because we're not our own source. We're like the moon. God is the sun. The moon doesn't have its own light. It borrows it from the sun. But given that, it shines very brightly. So also, we don't have our own source. God is our source, but he wants to pour himself, his love, his, his worth, his security into us. So much so that we, it's uncontainable. And so it overflows towards others. By definition, it overflows towards others because the kind of love we're talking about is agape love. And agape love is other-oriented love. And so by God's design, his other-oriented love pours into us. And then our other-oriented love flows out towards other people. And now we are dancing the dance that God always wanted us to dance. This is what creation is all about. This is what life is all about. To be dancing in the light of God's perfect love. Reflecting that love toward ourselves, towards one another, also towards the animal and the, the plant kingdom, the earth. That was our first job description. We put God on display by being little mirrors of God. This is how we share in the glory of God. The glory of God. A lot of people have funky ideas about God's glory. God created the world for his own glory. And, and you get this picture of God as kind of a narcissist. You know, God, uh, he, he only loves himself. I've heard theologians say that. He only loves himself. Uh, he, he does everything for himself. Well, see, that would work if his glory was kind of a, a pathetic human, you know, needy glory. But the glory of God is the shininess of his love, and the love we're talking about is agape love. And agape love is other-oriented love. God is glorified precisely when he doesn't do that, but when he rather gives himself away. That's why his glory is shareable. He shares his glory with others. Some, I, some people have this idea, like, I've been criticized for saying God shares his glory with others. Um, no, his glory is, is agape love, and so almost by definition, he shares it with others. That's why Jesus prays this prayer. Look, look at this prayer in John 17. I have given them, referring to his disciples, the glory that you gave me. Apparently, his glory is given away a lot. Father gives it to the Son, Son gives it to us. Why? So that we may be one as he and the Father are one. You see, the, the union of the Trinity, that is the glory of God, that perfect love is now given to us. And so, insofar as we receive that and surrender to that, we begin to look like that. We become one even as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is one. We, we mirror, in our community, we mirror something of the glory of God. We dance in His glory. We participate in His glory. And that, folks, is all about what agape love is. Agape love is loving out of a center of fullness, and therefore loving without evaluation, loving without judgment, loving without extraneous opinions, loving without scaling people, uh, uh, putting them on some kind of scale that we have. It's love without trying to get anything back. Because it's love that isn't trying to feed itself. It's agape love. It's overflowing love. It's God-like love. You, therefore, you can love whether the person's your friend or foe. You love whether they're going to benefit you or harm you. Because it's not about them. It's about who you are because of who God is pours himself into you, and you just flow out. That is the kingdom of God. And now we're in a position to begin to understand that passage that we read earlier. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Let's read it again. For Christ's love compels us, drives us, motivates us, because, here's why, we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves. That black hole perpetually hungry self. We should no longer live that pathetic way, but rather for him who died for them and was raised again. Okay, let's break this down. Three points. First of all, no, Paul says, if Christ died for all, all have died. What does that mean? 
I don't think it means that everyone's automatically a Christian because look around, not everyone is. doesn't mean that. But it does mean that in some very real sense, when Jesus died, everyone died. What I think he's getting at, in fact, what I'm quite sure he's getting at is this. When Jesus died on the cross and the pipeline between us and God was opened up once again, that old pathetic self, that black hole self, that needy self, that perpetually hungry self, and along with that whole evaluative contract way of living, what Paul calls the flesh, all of it was killed. It was disempowered. It was done away with. Which means this. When God shines the way he shines on the cross, on Calvary, which is another way of referring to the cross, when God shines like that, remember the sun is the perfect radiance of the Father's glory. He's the shininess of the shiny love. And, 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 and so when God shines like he does on Calvary, everyone is going to get shined on. When God is that bright, everyone gets shined on. Like it or not, the love that God expressed on Calvary is engulfing you. You can't help that. It's a little bit like this. The trees outside, they don't get to choose whether the sun shines on them or not. It just does. That's what the sun does. It's not about the trees. It's about the sun. So also, we don't get to choose whether Jesus died for us or not. He did. Done. Done fact. Sorry. We don't get to choose whether God, God is going to love us, whether he's going to claim us as his own, whether his love is going to envelop us 24-7. We don't get to choose whether God's going to put a bear hug around us and claim us as his own. He does. It's already a done deal. There's nothing you can do to change that fact because it's not about you. It's about God. This is the kind of love that God is. And if God's that kind of a God, well, his love's going to shine on you and engulf you. And he's going to claim you as his own. You can throw a, a, a fit if you want. You can throw a temper tantrum. You can say you don't like it. You don't believe it. Uh, you, you can rail against it. You can sin your brains out. But the reality is this. I don't care how good you are at sinning, and maybe you are really good, but you're not nearly a good enough sinner to turn off the sun. No, you're not nearly, enough, you're not nearly a good enough sinner to stop the fact that God loves you. That's like throwing an ice cube at the sun and thinking you can put out the sun. Oh, I'll show the sun. I'll throw an ice cube at it. It ain't going to work. No, no, where sin does abound, grace does much more abound, Paul says in Romans chapter 5. Now what you can do is you can close your eyes and pretend that the light isn't there. Oh, look it, it all went dark, the lights must have went out. Now, I just closed my eyes. But you can do that, in fact, that is exactly what sin is. Sin is pretending that the true God is not the true God, and that Jesus didn't die for you, and that you weren't created with a desperate neediness for him. That's what Paul calls the flesh, it's a false way of living. You can do that because you have free will, and God's not going to turn you into a robot because then the choice to love him would, wouldn't be a, a free one. You can, you can close your eyes if you want to. That's sin. They, 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 in church history, they use the metaphor of sin being a self-curvature. We close in on ourselves. We become a black hole locked in our own little alternate reality that is false. You can fight back if you want to, but your fighting back won't change the fact. In fact, what happens is, is when you fight God's perfect love for you, the heat of that love, as we said a couple weeks ago, the heat of that love is experienced as the heat of his wrath. But the wrath is there out of his love to burn away those eyelids that keep shutting your eyes so you cannot see the sun. God in his love doesn't give up on you. You can refuse to acknowledge it, but it's still true. You can no more change the fact that Jesus died for you than you can change any other fact in, 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 in history. It's done. The sun is shining on you, which means this. You don't have to strive to kill your old self. It's already dead. And you don't have to strive to get God to love you. You've already got it. It's so crazy that 
People spend so much of their energy trying to get God to love them when the one thing that we can't do is get him to stop loving us. It's nuts. It's crazy. We're in bondage to this deception. The sun's just going to keep on shining. If Christ died for all, then all have died. Which is the second point. Paul says, we are convinced Christ died for all. Notice the connection between being convinced of this and being compelled by the love of God. We don't get compelled by the love of God because we do something to get more of God's love or we do something to, to you know, have access to the inner court or whatever. All that is religion. Anytime you, you do something to get something from God, that's religion. You're still negotiating. You're still in that fallen judgmental framework. But it's when we become convinced that he died for all that we begin to be compelled by the love of Christ. Here's how the New Testament consistently, without exception, presents things. Here's how the New Testament thinks. It first tells us what is true. Then it tells us how we're to think about what is true. And then it tells us how we're to behave in light of what is true. Never are we supposed to behave in a certain way to get something from God. That's religion. Rather, God decides what is true. And then we're told to get our thoughts to line up with what is true. And then our behavior will follow. Know what is true, think what is true, behave what is true. A great example of this is in Romans 6. You've got these misguided Christians in Rome who are, who are sinning that grace may abound. Apparently their jaded thinking was, and it's still around quite a bit, since God's a God of grace, well then I get to do whatever I want. Or even worse, since God's a God of grace, I'm doing him a favor by sinning because he likes to forgive people apparently. What a deal. See, we're making a deal. A jaded deal, but still a deal. Paul, Paul addresses that by basically saying, What? Make Genito agree. God forbid it's, it's translated. What are you? Your thinking is all screwed up. He says this, Romans 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him. Why do you keep on acting as though your old self was still alive when it's dead? Your old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That old self is done. Since we died with Christ. Look at that past fact. It's done. We died with Christ. We believe that we will also live with him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. Done, 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 done. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And we live in him, therefore we live to God. And then Paul says, in the same way, since that's what's true, that's reality, here's how you should think. In the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Because that's what's real. The word he uses there is logizomai. Uh, in Greek, it's in the middle voice. Isn't that interesting? Uh, it just means uh, you turn it back on yourself. Consider yourself. See yourself. Think about yourself the way you actually are. Dead to sin, but alive to God and Jesus Christ. And if you do that, well, then the last passage says, verse 12, Therefore, because you're thinking that way and because that's what's real, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Roman Christians, you, you're sinning that grace may abound. Well, don't you know who you are in Christ? Don't you know what Christ has done for you? You're dead. You are dead. That old self is dead. Why do you keep acting like it's, it's alive? Get your thoughts to line up with what is true. And get your behavior to line up with the way you think. If I'm really dead, that changes everything. Christ died for all, therefore all have died. Therefore Greg Boyd, the old Greg Boyd, is dead. Which means if I'm convinced of that, if I'm really convinced of that, well then I don't live life now trying to get full. Because God's already given it to me. I've already got the fullness in Christ. There's nothing that you could give me or anything in the world could give me that I don't already have in Christ Jesus. I'm full. If that old self is dead, I'm not going to live life clinging to it. I'm dead. I'm not going to live life striving to, 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 to get, to get uh, approval from people. No, I'm, I'm dead. I'm not going to strive to acquire the, achieve the American dream. Why? Because I'm dead. If I'm really convinced of that, then I'm free. 
Ain't no person on the planet that is as free as a dead person. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that? Dead people, they don't care about a whole lot. Of, I've never seen once a corpse biting its nails. <laughs> oh, what's going to happen to me? Well, <laughs> you're dead. <laughs> now, you might be like Bruce Willis in the movie Sixth Sense. You're dead and you don't know it. Uh, you keep acting like you're alive. But the reality is, and you've got to wake up to this, open your eyes, quit pretending you are dead. When Jesus died, everyone died, therefore you died. And when you become convinced of that, man, it changes your life. For one thing, you can now be like the birds of the air and, 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 and the, the, the lilies of the field. You know, they die, but they don't care. <laughs> they just trust God moment to moment. There's a carefreeness, a dance, a joy that comes when you realize that you died with Christ Jesus. And not only that, but if I'm convinced that everybody is like that, well then, that, that, if I think that way and I'm convinced of that, well then, then I will live in a way where I affirm the unsurpassable worth of every person I come in contact with. Why? Because Jesus died for them. That means God thinks they have an unsurpassable worth. Not dependent on, on what they do, on their lifestyle, on their politics, on their national status, whether they're a friend or a foe. No, it's contingent on one thing. It's dependent on one thing and one thing only. And that is that Jesus died for them just as he died for me. And so now if I'm convinced of that, I will reflect that unsurpassable worth in how I interact with them. And see, now, finally... Finally, it begins to make sense that the New Testament says love your enemies. Of course. God loves us when we're enemies, and now we're filled with his love, and the rest of us is dead. The old self is dead. And, and once that old self is dead, all that self-protection that makes us hate enemies and want to retaliate, that's dead. If you're really convinced of it, that's dead. So you, now you can love your enemies. But they might hurt you. Well, I'm already dead. <laughs> they might steal from you. I already lost it all. <laughs> you know, they might threaten you. Well, I'm already dead. They might do you harm, they might kill you. Well, I'm already dead. And see, that frees me now to just overflow towards them. Whatever they are towards me, I can overflow towards them. The New Testament teaching about loving enemies isn't some like rule that now we've got to like try hard on our own effort to, 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 to fulfill. It's, it's more, more than that. It's a description of how, in fact, we live when we are, and the old self is dead, and we're alive in Christ Jesus. This is just what it looks like to live in agape love. This is what it looks like to live under the, the, the reign of the God who is agape love. When we're convinced that Christ died for all and therefore all have died, it changes how we live completely. Now we're empowered to love others. And thirdly, Paul says the love of Christ compels us, drives us, motivates us. Folks, this is, this is, this is the, the, the supreme goodness of the good news. There's an entirely different way of living that I'm afraid most people have no clue about. And it's living no longer as a black hole where you're hungry. It's living out of a fullness that comes from the inside. It compels you. It drives you. It motivates you. You explode. See, there's two ways of living, really. It comes out two ways of living. You can live life either as a, 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 out of desperation or out of celebration. It comes down to, you can live life as a desperate attempt to try to get full the black hole self, or you can get full and live life as a celebration of the fact that you already are full. It comes down to that. How are you going to live? You can pretend that Jesus didn't die for you. You can close your eyes and pretend like the sun disappeared. You can pretend like God doesn't love you. You can pretend like, like he doesn't have all rights over your life. You can pretend that he's not the source of everything. Go ahead and do that, and you'll live your life as a pathetic black hole, constantly trying to suck out of your environment what God has already given you for free. But that's how most people live. What motivates most people is, I need this, I want that, I got to get this. Trying to meet some need in their life. But in the light of Christ, we don't need to live that way any longer. 
That's an old way of living, a false way of living that now is dead. The truth is that we died with Christ. The truth is that we're alive in Christ. And the truth is that every other part of us is dead. The life we have is now Jesus Christ. Paul says this explicitly in Galatians chapter 2. He says, I no longer live. Now, he, he, biologically, of course, he was still alive. He had a heartbeat and brainwaves and all the rest. But the old Paul, the old Paul, that was always needy, always trying to get God's approval by doing the law, that old self is dead. And then he says, the life I now live, I live in Jesus Christ. Christ lives in me. The truth is that, and there's nothing you can do to make this true. It's already true. And the truth is that we are animated zombies. The old self is dead. We're, we're, we're zombies, but now we're animated by Jesus Christ himself. When you surrender your life to Christ and just open your eyes and acknowledge the truth, you'll see that the only life you've got is Jesus Christ. That's why the Bible calls us who, who open our eyes and acknowledge the truth. We are, we are the body of Jesus Christ. We are his hands. We are his feet. He uses our body. He's animating our body, but he's the one living in us, living through us, loving in us and loving through us. It's no longer I that lives, but Christ who lives within me. The world does what it does out of a hunger, out of a striving, out of an emptiness, insisting on my, their rights, always fighting. Because, you know, I've got to establish myself, got to get my territory, protecting itself and all the rest. But those who are in the kingdom have died to that. They have died to that. They've acknowledged that they died when Christ died. And that means we are free now to live an entirely different way of life. Free to live not out of desperation, but out of celebration. We're free now to be concerned with one thing and one thing only, and that is loving God and others with all of our heart, with all of our passion. Receiving and overflowing in the love of Jesus Christ. We're free to dance. It all comes down to this. This is the kingdom. Holy Spirit helps to get this. God overflows towards me. And if I, if I acknowledge that reality and, and, and acknowledge that I am dead in Jesus Christ, then I am, to that extent, defined by the love flowing in me, and now it's free to flow through me. I can't get more of that love. I've already got it. I just got to stop blocking it by closing my eyes and pretending like it's not true. We're to be a people who just acknowledge that it's already done. It is there, and now I'm free to, to live with abandon. Now I'm free to live as God calls me to live, calls all of us to live. Now I am free to be like the birds of the air and the grass of the field, to, to live moment by moment with this carefreeness. Now I'm free to be able to sing as if no one was listening and to dance like no one was watching and to worship God with all my heart. Now I'm free to be as weird as I want to be because I don't care what you think anymore. I mean, it really comes down to that. I'm free. Amen. I'm free. I'm free to be whoever God calls me to be. And the love of Christ compels us. It is so freeing to live life out of a center. What I do... Now, to the extent that I line up with this, and we're all in process on this, but to the extent that I live truth and get rid of the lie, the extent to which the old Greg boy dies and now I, I live out the life of Jesus Christ within me, well, to that degree, to that degree, I, I, I live out of a center of fullness, overflow, celebration. Don't need to be clinging to anything. Don't need to be insisting on anything. Don't need to be fighting about anything. No, there's this freedom. And see, to that degree, we're in the image of God. We're doing, we're doing what God does. He overflows, we overflow. He, he gives it to us to us, he, glory on us, and then we glorify him by shining to the world around us. You can't get there by doing anything, reading anything, going to a seminar or whatever. Those things might help you align yourself with truth, but in the end, you get there when you realize that you've always been there. Because Jesus Christ died for all, and therefore all have died. I want to do this, end with this exercise. I'm running a little bit over. I'll tell the children's thing I'll be done in a few minutes here, but I, I want us to lock this in. We think... 
and concrete images. So I want you to close your eyes and get a concrete image of yourself. Picture yourself for a moment. And this view, this, this you that you're seeing in your mind's eye right now, Holy Spirit, help us to see this. This is, this is the false you, okay? This is the you that is always hungry. This is the black hole you, the needy you, the you that's always trying to get attention or worried about what people think or, 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 or trying to feel secure on the basis of, of, of what you achieve or whatever. That's the old you, okay? Got it? And now notice right next to you there is this cave. It actually is the tomb of Jesus. That's how the tombs looked back then. And I want you, that old you, to walk into that cave. Because when Jesus died, all died, therefore you died. You go into that tomb. So now all you see is the cave. And now notice this explosion of, of light coming out of that cave. That's just the, the, the life and love of God invading that cave as it did on Easter morning. Something has happened inside of that cave. And now see yourself coming out of that cave, but you're holding the hand of Jesus because when Jesus was raised, you were raised. And the life you now live, you live in Jesus Christ. You live toward God. And this is the new you, holding the hand of Jesus. And now hear yourself say, as you look on that new you, that is the true you. That is really what's real. You're not making this up. No, it's 2,000 years old. It was determined on Calvary. This is the real you. And now just ask the Holy Spirit to give you a clear idea, a vision. This is what faith is, it's a vision. A vision of who you really are when you are convinced that the old self is dead. How, how do you think differently? How do you live differently in this world when you really believe that? How do you live differently when you really believe that you are the bride of Christ, that you ravish the heart of God? How do you live differently when you really are convinced that every sin is forgiven, that there is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus? How do you live differently? When you really believe that you're filled with the fullness of God and that his love permeates every square inch of your being and that his joy fills your heart and that peace that passes understanding characterizes all of your emotions and thoughts and behavior. Can you, can you see yourself as you really are? Because if you can't see yourself, you'll never actually become that. It's who you truly are. How do you interact differently when you don't just love your enemies out of a rule but you really have God's heart for them? What do you look like as a person who's dancing with God, dancing with Jesus Christ, dancing in the triune love of God, the glory of God? What do you look like when you're carefree, worry-free, when you really believe and you're really convinced that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, when you really believe that? See yourself as that. I encourage you to daydream that dream right now, the one that you're dreaming now. Throughout the day, every day, Get a vision. Logizomai. Think about yourself as you truly are. And as I close, praying that the Holy Spirit will seal this into our minds and hearts. I'm going to ask the prayer team to come forward. And if you're here this morning, have any need whatsoever that you'd like to pray about, or if you just want to come forward and pray at the altar, I encourage you to do that. But Holy Spirit, right now, would you lock in, lock in the vision of who we truly are, that true self. Lord, lock in the reality that the old self is dead. Help us to be convinced of that. Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Lord, help us to do the spiritual warfare of coming against every thought and every imagination that doesn't agree with who we are in Christ Jesus, that doesn't agree with you and all of your beauty, and doesn't agree with us and all of the beauty that you have given us. Help us to take every thought captive to Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. 
Lord, remind us to chew on this vision over and over and over and over again. That we could think the truth, that we could live the truth, and everything we do to be compelled by the love of God, the love of Jesus Christ, flowing into us, flowing through us 24-7. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said one last time. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and dance. Covenant Partner Meeting back here at 115. See you later.